Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers, the show where I shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are and why they do what they do. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I know I say this every week, but it's true. I'm so glad you're here tuning in and doing this life thing with me. So thank you. Speaking of life, I just wrapped principal photography on the feature Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Sterling K. Brown and Regina Hall are just pure magic. They're sparkly, sparkly humans who just light up a room. And I cannot wait for the world to witness their brilliance. I'll definitely be sharing more updates on that project. If you don't already, follow me on the socials at Carolina Gropa, at Angle on Producers of the podcast. And hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. Like, subscribe, tell a friend, tag a friend, spread the word. I appreciate you. This week on the show, I'm very excited to shift gears a little bit. Danielle DiGiacomo is head of content at Utopia Media, where she leads acquisition, development, and packaging for incoming content and IP. She's also one of the coolest, realest ladies in the biz, and we're lucky she's given us this masterclass on acquisitions and distribution, two subjects that often aren't really talked about on this show. We focus so much on development and production, but rarely do we get into talking about what happens once that movie is completed and ready to be taken to market and ready to be sold. And that's where Danielle comes in. And part of what makes her so fascinating and makes this conversation so unique is that she has spent most of her career on that side of the business. She's learned how to trust her gut to distribute the most exciting and daring films around. Danielle previously worked as Senior VP of Acquisitions and Strategic Partnerships at The Orchard and its rebranded company, 1091. While there, she landed many buzzy independent films, such as the Oscar-nominated documentary Cartel Land, the Sundance comedy The Overnight, and the drama Neruda out of the Cannes Film Festival. During this no-holds-barred conversation, we talk about the ins and outs of distribution, the art of negotiation, and how no one really knows what they're doing, so we might as well be kind to each other and have fun while we figure it out. So, without further ado, let's just dive in and hear from Danielle. So I created the show to kind of shine a light on lovely ladies like yourself who are out there crushing it to give us a moment to share our stories. So thank you for saying yes and for being on the show. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you. And I love what you're doing. And I always love talking to female producers as well to share the the struggle. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The struggle is real. Um, But I want to take it back a little bit to the beginning, um, you know, how you found the business and how you got in it. Because you ever since I've known you, you've been sort of on the acquisition side. Right. Um, starting with, we met when you were at the Orchard back when that was the Orchard before it became 1901. Um, so yeah, so just take us to the beginning of how you found this crazy business. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. It's something that's come up a lot in the last few days, just talking randomly with some friends about what's missing still in the kind of path from higher education to career mm-hmm. in the business. Um, if you're not already in the world of Hollywood or film, um, it's, you know, obviously filled with nepotism and 
that can be both good and bad. Like I, I'm the beneficiary of that right now. In some ways, like I worked for Robert Schwartzman's uh, company and he's the brother of Jason and mm. his mother, Paul Shire and all of that, you know, helps, but he's also like an incredible person and thinker and filmmaker. But, you know, compare, it just shows like how our journeys were so incredibly different because he grew up in a family where being in film was like something that was a reality and something you knew you could do and there was a path to it. Whereas I grew up knowing I wanted to major in film and study it and do something with film. But like, what does a job look like? What does a sales agent do? What does a producer do? The only job I really knew was director. And I don't think I even fully understood what that was. Yeah, Um, I just knew I liked film and I was going to study it in college. But I literally had like no plan or strategy for a long term sustainable career in this business. So um, (laughs) a lot of where I am today is just meeting the right people and luck and hustling um, and, you know, making the right connections, which is something that I think we don't maybe talk about enough, just how much of a connector, um, you know, uh, a networking thing it really is and who you know is so important in relationships and keeping good um sustainable relationships and respectful relationships is incredibly important but um you know I just really I I was telling my boyfriend yesterday I remember going to Wesleyan's office of career services and I was just this go-getter and ambitious but I like had no idea after being a film major there in a very selective program, how I would make any money or have a job doing this in any way. There was just no one in my world had ever done anything like that before. I didn't know that you could go and, you know, um, if you're a writer, like show a script to an agent and then if they like it, like get them to represent you. I had no idea the business side of things. There was absolutely no preparation for career in my college. And so I went to the career office and I literally, this was pre, you know, lots of email. It was like hand wrote letters to all these alumni film majors and no one wrote back to me. Um, But, you know, then I just continued to fall into it. My first job out of college was writing film synopses for a company that just um, like 10 a day, we didn't even watch the movies. We would just read a bunch of stuff about them. And then we would write these little blurbs that then went into like the kiosks you used to see at Tower Records. Yeah. Uh, And then I was like, I need to go to grad school because I still don't know how to have a sustainable career. So I went back to school. And then- Where did you go? uh, To the new school. Mm. Um, and I studied documentary specifically. I thought I was, my plan at that time was to go into academia and I was about to get my PhD. And then um, a friend just invited me randomly to the Hamptons. He had just started working at this startup that this rich guy who had made a lot of money was starting a like digital film distribution company. Um, and was like, do you want to be my plus one to the Hamptons Film Festival? He has a house there. 
like okay and he was yeah (laughs) yeah he was impressed that I knew a lot about film and documentary and he liked me so he hired me and that was really the luck of so you got your job at the at a party at a Hamptons and yeah Hamptons Inn oh my god at the (laughs) very different at the Hampton Film Festival (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, millionaire who wanted to start in film and was like I like this girl she knows stuff but it's that thing, right, that everybody talks about. Oprah famously talked about it, that preparation meeting opportunity. You could have been just just another person at this party, but because of all of your interest and the your insight and your passion for that for documentaries, the stars aligned and it was like the universe was like, Here you go, my child, you're ready. You know? Yeah. And you're like, Yes, and it just all aligned. But it it's was. like you know, the yeah. years of stuff to get you to that moment and that intersection is is the the key, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But had I not just like made that relationship and had that friend yeah. who was literally still at NYU and just an intern, and I don't even, I think he just answered a Craigslist ad or something. Mm. Who knows where I would be today, honestly, because that yeah. taught me, I mean, that was really like a fake it till you make it moment because I had no idea what distribution even was. I just knew that I knew about film and I could probably pick good ones, but like I had to learn as I went, which I think is a lot of what producing is. Um, And I think it's a lot of what, I mean, any job is to get to the next level is learning as you go. But as a producer, you have to wear so many hats and you really have to understand like all the different parts of the orchestra um, and have all the left side and the right side and all the sides all of the, the sides yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so I feel bad and it's just so much yeah. and you can't know it all you can't be an expert in everything so you also no you certainly you certainly can't and and one of the things that I resent a little bit about our industry is that there is a negative sort of imprint on you if you don't know about something that like how could you have known about that thing you know there's like the facade we all have to put up like of using buzzwords to pretend like we really understand certain things when we kind of don't you understand it on the other side of it but right I wonder how much more we would get done if there was just like just study what this actually means, actually learn it. So then you can have a conversation, but it's like hidden, tucked away in like some box that only like Harrison Ford can find in some movie. Like it just feels like this impossible thing. And it's almost like a test, you know, the people that can kind of play that game well enough. Yeah. And everybody knows, we all know, we all know. But if you can like pass the test, it's like being hazed almost, then then we can let you in and we'll we'll share with you how how shit actually gets done. <laughs> you know. That's very true. It's very true. Right? That's how it and feels. They purposely make those barriers so it's inaccessible because everyone's just so insecure about um actually ha- having a job in this industry that they and that's also why a lot of like group things happens and a lot of um uh, distributors don't take risks on things because there is such this like culture of I hope this doesn't get me in trouble sorry <laughs> my industry <laughs> but like, almost like sheep like culture it's like okay yeah. one oh A24 is bidding on it then it must be good even though I hated it so right. I'm gonna also 
that kind of thing. It's like once you're in it's that the FOMO. Pool, it's, it's the FOMO fun. business, right? It's like, well, everybody else Absolutely. wants it now. Wait, Jennifer Lawrence put her name on it. I guess it's good. Like even though you passed on it and you didn't right. trusted your instincts, you know? And maybe yes, exactly. she did something incredible with that project. It's not to poo-poo her. I don't know why she was like an example that came up. <laughs> her name just popped in my brain. Yeah, I don't know, Jennifer. Be She's great if Jennifer Lawrence. Right? But but you know what I mean? And then there's just like this this frenzy of, I don't know, it's like this really right. crazy, the FOMO of it is real. And then, yeah, then people on the outside are spinning their wheels being like, well, what do I make? What does the industry want? Like, how do I get my story told? And then eventually, after five years, if you're lucky, that's a short amount of time you start to realize, oh, there are no rules. Like, nobody knows what the fuck they're doing. I'm just going to go tell my Very stories true. and find a way, you know? That's very. Yeah, I I hope I can help through these conversations, just help bridge that gap a little bit, so that it can just take a little less time for people to get to those realizations. Because, like you said, there isn't anything resources out there really for producers that aren't books written mostly in the '90s about what it was like to be a producer back then. And sadly, not much has changed. <laughs> you yeah. know, so yeah. we gotta yeah. inject inject some new new energy into all of it. And I think with all of the movements that we're in the middle of, which is incredible, uh, you know, with focusing on women and diverse stories and the Black Lives Matter movement and shining a light on all of that, which should have been just a thing, shouldn't have been a movement, but whatever. Um, here we are. And so I, I do think it's like, pandemic aside, you know, a wonderful time to be alive. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I would hope so. I mean, I, yeah, there's, um, I mean, a lot of interesting things come from your statement. I think that COVID, for all of its really devastating and terrible effects, um, for some reason has injected new life into the film industry. Um, just in that, like, it's it's making even, you know, studios are kind of the their hands are so tied even for executives because they're so huge and any change or any risk that they take has to be approved by like 10 people. And some of them are in Japan because it's Sony and they, they, they don't have the flexibility or just the freedom to right. really um, pivot strategy really quickly or do something that might be risky or outside the box. But COVID really forced them to be like, maybe we don't need to do theatrical for 120 days first. Maybe there's different ways to do this. Right. Maybe we could try like, a, you know, a more experimental movie or a foreign film after Parasite. I mean, which right. proved, which was amazing, but yeah, studios are the last to adopt and they're not. Um, they're dinosaurs. I get it. Yeah. They they're yeah. massive like you need thousands of people to it's move like it's like a sh the ship so, metaphor right it's a massive yes. ship that takes so much effort to like change one degree of course where i feel like indie producers smaller studios are like i don't know i just feel like i'm a i'm a dinghy that's kind of how i feel yeah. I'm just a little dinghy right. just like going I mean, around like zooming just around figure out okay wait there's an iceberg i'm just gonna turn it around i'm yeah. not like hit it go around it like try to go around it, it. <laughs> yeah exactly um so i get it it's it's been way of doing business for as long as the industry has been around but what what fascinates me about the, the studio system and 
the powers that be is have they not seen what happened to the music industry? Have they not seen how disruptors have already come in and changed the game? What Netflix has done, what Amazon is doing. So like how much more do they need to realize like, Hey, perhaps it's time to revisit the model. It's not really that sustainable anymore. Like people are going to TikTok, and that's like the eyeballs on a TikTok thing are more than your thing. You've spent all this time trying to get out, you know, but now because COVID basically forced them into having to think about a life without theaters, which would be devastating, but it also did force them to innovate and, you know, mix up their windows and not have to do theatrical first. And maybe this is better if it premieres on HBO Max or, right. you know, that kind of, or we have a different kind of release strategy and not the same one for every film. And I think that a lot of what they learned from that will stay in place. Um, and a lot of the studios will kind of adopt to a new, more forward thinking model. If only because yeah. they had to or they would have you know lost so much more money so yeah yeah absolutely well I'm curious how your what insights you have to share having sort of come up in the distribution acquisition side of the business at a time when it's been changing so rapidly and just like what you've learned, you know, I think a lot of listeners are probably hungry to know, like, what what is it like to acquire a film? Like, everybody makes a movie and dreams of it getting acquired and getting distributed. That's like, it ends with you, right? The buck stops with you. So what is that process like for you personally? What is it that you look for? What do you love about it? What are some things that people don't know that suck about it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, um, it taught me a lot as a producer as well. Yeah. To- always be thinking about my audience and not only that but what is the best what do we want after the edit is it that I mean of course everyone wants to go to Sundance and get a big deal and win all the Oscars but like right what is a like a more realistic but yeah Yeah, yeah. but also (laughs) financially stable path so I can pay back my investors and go on to the next one what's like a sustainable path for my career um Mm -hmm. as opposed to like that magical thinking of like we'll go to Sundance and be the next uh Little Miss Sunshine because right one of the biggest things I think that filmmakers get surprised by when I tell them is that Sundance and those festivals um it's so political and it's so much about your connections. And if you're repped by one of the big agencies and, and, or if you came up in the Sundance labs or if you have the right uh, champions behind you, this is not a, it's a myth. I think that you can just apply to Sundance and get picked out of the pile unless you have someone who's in the industry already who's gunning for you. Right. It just doesn't work like that. Getting into Sundance is a political campaign. It's and it has nothing to do with the quality of your film if you're rejected. It truly doesn't. It really has to do with who you know. Right. And I, I think it, it used to be like that at one point when Sundance started, but it's when the industry started seeing, oh, this is a place where you can discover and and they they did what they do with all things and they, you know, politicized it and they um sponsored got it sponsored by a bunch of people and it's become just another another shade of the same color effectively 
Yeah. And I think that really surprises people because they've yeah. heard the, you know, uh, the myth of getting discovered at Sundance just from like, right. like the They're Kevin thinking, Smith myth. Or, right. Mark Duplass, like when that was still a thing where you could right. make a movie for $3 and, and like it would blow people's minds because right. the cameras and had just been, you know. Yeah. Happen sometimes, but that's yeah. not the sun. And I, I mean, I started in distribution 15 years ago, but really after this first startup company, I went to producing for 10 years and then got back into it because I wanted healthcare <laughs> and stability. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that because I was producing docs and that was before Netflix and all the streamers came up and started paying um, a lot of money for them and making doc producing more viable than it ever had been in the past. Yeah. Um, so I've seen that explosion. I first started buying films before Netflix and Amazon started coming in with those like absurd numbers and driving up the prices for everyone right it quickly after two years at the orchard it quickly became a seller's market because you had netflix stepping in and paying ridiculous prices that would never make sense for a traditional distributor right but somehow work within their economics which is like subscriber base so they can just throw they have essentially a different economy and they can throw out like three million dollars without even thinking about right having to make it back or their budget so it just changed the equation completely and i think mm. some of that for the good for filmmakers um and a lot of it not good right. um but it's i mean it's good in that it's it has been driving up price points which is good for the filmmakers who get those deals I also, though, think that now it's created more of a divide between sort of the 1% of producers and everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, look at Palm Springs, you know, last year with Hulu. Like, that was a little bit of a slap in the face, I think, because it's like, really, you couldn't have taken that and bought, right. like, six different movies for, like, because that budget was, like, $3 million, I think, like... And you know all that money didn't go to the crew's pockets. Like, and I know my AD team actually from Sylvie's Love went right immediately after our production to that movie. And I know how hard it was for them, you know? And it's like, there's no support really for the middle class, the working class of Hollywood, yes. which is often not talked about. And But that's mm -hmm. what, where most people end yeah. up. I think it's like we all have, like you said, the dreams of being the 1% of indie filmmakers and, and having first look deals, but not many people reach those goals. And so you're just kind of going from project to project. And as these budgets keep getting smaller, it's like, how do you sustain, how does anybody sustain a livelihood in a, in production specifically that is so demanding of like your time and your, your body, you know, like you're just it's grueling, like the hours, like the people that go grips and camera assistants who go from like one job to the next to the next. And I'm like, you're literally working 300 days out of the year. And they're like, yeah, I need to support my family. I need to 
make sure yeah. I, I can qualify for my health insurance at the end of the year. And it's like, that's not the glamour, sexy part of showbiz kids. Like you're not going to see anybody talking about that on the red carpet, you know, no lounge sponsored at Sundance. No, if they even get invited, you know, and that is yeah. um, the underbelly of it. It's all about the glitz and the glamour and pushing that forward. And I get it. That's why we are all lured into the business in some to some extent. Um, and I love that part of it. I don't want it to go away. But I my goal is to just, you know, remind people that if you're living for those moments, which are so few and far between, if you get to even experience them, you're chasing the wrong high and you're in for a very disappointing journey because you're not going to be able to control if that happens, how often right. it happens for you. Um, so you have to really love the the journey so like the the day to day of getting to do this whether you're a writer or an actor or a producer you know because it's it's a grind so yeah I mean yeah. think of it if you think about um, the ultimate frustrating job where you can get paid a lot but never see anything made it's screenwriter <laughs> like that's the a great symbol for what Hollywood can be meaning I have a lot of screenwriter friends who consistently get paid $150,000 to write scripts. And there's a lot for writers right now because product everyone's in development because production right. slowed because of COVID. Right. So you have all these writers getting these very well-paid jobs. And so many of them, those films, those TV episodes have never gotten made. Career screenwriters who have a lot of money, but they've never had anything actually produced. Produced, yeah, that's, which that's is another what this industry can be. Yeah, which is a thing, right? You, you can make a, li a living doing that. But then that question of like, well, have you are you a produced screenwriter? Which right. a not a lot of people can point to that they can have sold a bunch of stuff doesn't mean it got made, you know, and so it's it's interesting. It's an interesting uh, <laughs> business that we've chosen that chose us however you want to look at it. Um, but I just want to jump back into the acquisitions thing for a bit, because I know that's a big point of curiosity. So just like, walk me through an example, maybe of a film that has already come across your way, and you don't have to say what project it is, maybe one of the best experiences you had, or one of the most challenging of, of an acquisition and the, and the whole process, just so we can understand what that what that work, how that works. Yeah, um, sure. So I'll start with the first film I acquired at my new job at Utopia. Um, yes, which congrats, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's, actually, it's been a year now, so it's not that new. But um, yeah. um, so I acquired a, so I didn't go to Sundance last year. I was between jobs at that point, And Utopia hired me in end of February. But there's still films from Sundance that were available. So I watched a film called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Um, by the Ross brothers, who are mm. these incredibly talented uh, filmmakers who blend nonfiction with fiction elements in a really um, immersive and funny and fresh way. Um, and so they did this film that got a lot, a good amount of attention and critical acclaim at Sundance last year, but was it's art house. I think a lot of people didn't understand it. Although mm. Critics loved it. Some people, it's about basically the last night of a dive bar for working class people in Las Vegas, like off the strip. Um, but they 
kind of cast the regulars in the bar. Oh, cool. So they were real people playing themselves, but they were not like native to that bar. Um, so they really like used these fiction elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a, like you laugh, you cry. It's so real and funny and heartbreaking and has just incredible moments between um, just these real working class humans um, as the space where they go to relate to each other is gonna um, not be around anymore. So I saw it and I thought it was really special and that this was still when theatrical was, this was a couple weeks before COVID. So like I thought that I was acquiring it for a small theatrical release. So part of it is you watch the film, what I evaluate it for, um, I mean, it depends if you're evaluating something for theatrical distribution or just digital, um, we do both, but basically you look at a film and you sort of think about who, one, if you love it is, I think for me, the most important thing. There's definitely, films that I've loved less that I feel are more marketable and but um the number one thing is how compelling it is for me Hmm. um and then you know we then like talk to our head of marketing and theatrical distribution and sales uh to get their take because there is a financial element to it so you want to get your head of sales to say I think Netflix might be interested in this or HBO. Um, it's great to understand how much you think you can sell it to a platform for. That's a very important piece these days. Um, well, how, do, how does that price get determined? Because I would imagine like what Utopia would be willing to pay is different from what someone else would be willing to pay. So is there like a formula? What, what mean, is that? Yeah, it's a lot of it is what we do is called running comps. So mm-hmm. I'll see Buddy Knows Empty Pockets and look at over the last like three years, anything longer than that is ancient because the industry, that's how much the industry changes. You yeah. can't look at box office from three years ago because it's so different now, which mm-hmm. is crazy. Um, so you, you sort of think about other documentaries that have a similar audience. You look up what they've done. And you run what they call comps, sort of like estimate the lowest numbers you'll make in any window and then what you think you'll actually make and then a best case scenario. And then you kind of come up with it through those projections. Hmm. Work backward. I, I've often wondered how comps are done now without theatrical to look at. Like so many comps are streamer films, Netflix movies and stuff. Right. And you're like, I, I, I don't know what this budget was and I have no way of finding it. I guess it's this based on these elements, but it's it's even more of a guessing game, which is terrifying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of distributors do have output deals with um, yeah. with the SFUD, like Hulu and Netflix. Neon, for example, has an output deal with Hulu. Will you quickly define what an output deal is for the listeners? Yes. So an output deal is when a distributor has a pre-existing deal with a streamer that all of their films will go to that streamer after their theatrical window for a certain price point. 
Um, usually that price point is based on things like, is it a foreign film or a documentary? Then the price point's lower, of course. They don't value documentaries <laughs> too much. Um, and then what's the theatrical screen count going to be? How much marketing money or P&A, as we call it in the biz, that means prints yeah. and advertising, yeah. if people don't know, um, are you doing? And all of that determines the, pr- the price, but who's going to pay? But you know that there's a minimum floor. And then you can, and you know, it's going to end up on Hulu. So you can then back into like a advanced number based on that, which is, it's a nice thing to have. Um, Yeah. But it's also the reason why we've, I've never had one at a company is that it also takes away like being able to have a film that everyone wants and bid people up and get the best price for it. Right. So Okay, so you you find something you love, then you kind of run it up up the ladder or sideways to your your fellow uh, coworkers right. to see what they think. And if everybody's like, "Yeah, this is a go. We love this. Here's how much we're willing to pay for it," you then go back to the filmmakers, the producers, or whoever mm-hmm. it is that's or the or that maybe there's a buyer or a sales agent rather. Um, yeah, and then you tell them this is what we're willing to do, and then they take it back to the filmmakers to see if they want to accept it. Correct. Kind there's, of it, right? There's well, usually, so we'll send a, I'll send a deal memo. I know it's not going to be the last and final because there's a dance that you know you have to do. Yeah. Um, you kind of start with a lower number than you're prepared to go to because you know they're going to try to bid you up. So you build in buffer room for that. So you, they know you're starting lower than you can go. You know they're going to come back with a counter. But generally, the way they do it, which is psychologically, good, it's actually really good, emotional manipulation, <laughs> is that like they get your offer and they're like, okay, let's set a call with the filmmakers. And on that call, it's like a getting to know you pitch, basically. If we were at Sundance, we'd set up a meeting and my whole team would come in and we'd talk through the release plan and why we're the best company. And then the filmmakers would tell us things and we'd get to know them and be like, these guys are the best. Now we really want the film. That was great. What a great meeting. And that in your head, you're like, if that meeting goes well, then you're so excited that you're willing to pay more. It's just, that's what they're betting on basically. Mm-hmm. So then the agents, so no financial terms are brought up at that meeting. It's strictly like a strategy pitch. We really want a partner, blah, blah that kind of thing. And then you go back and then the agent takes you aside and is like, okay, I'll send you a counter tonight. And then they send you a counter. That's probably ridiculous. <laughs> like it's like twice as much as you wanted to pay with some ridiculous terms, but you kind of know that based on the agent, what right. You get to know the agents. You get the shorthand. Right, right, right. And yeah. then it's probably a couple more back and forth. And then you either lose the deal or you close the deal. Yeah. And then from there, do you, you're you off to the races to strategize, right, on all the good mm-hmm. stuff that comes after, and that's when it ends on most people's screens. Yeah. I mean, yeah. from there, though, I mean, there's still the really boring stuff of the legal yeah. deliverables, which are the biggest which is. It's the nightmare, but I think it's an important thing that a lot of filmmakers, especially new filmmakers, don't 
pay attention to any of that stuff. They don't pay attention to it when they're budgeting during editorials. Sometimes Um, they don't think about it when they're going out to their vendors and how much they're going to have to spend to do that. And so I think having been through that part of the process with some other films that weren't like personal films to me, where I was a part of the producing team, I learned that valuable lesson very early on that you want to have all of that information ahead of time. And if your hope is to sell to a streamer, you should budget deliverables for a streamer off the bat. Just assume that that's what it's going to cost. And if it isn't, then you save money. Good for you. Yeah. Just assume that you're going to have to spend the money to to get your dream version of that. Right. Um, And I think that's really valuable information. Some of that secret mystical information we were talking about earlier that isn't often shared or and you can tell who the more seasoned producers are because once they've been through it a few times delivering to a platform like they have it all but they're like yes it's all on this drive all the legal is here here's the email like here's the audio stems and they know that like you have to do all of that and they're so organized but yes, yeah because but you lived through that nightmare once and then yeah I wasn't like it. that and then we had to deliver to POV and like I love you oh, yeah. POV but that's a nightmare <laughs> they make yeah. you list every single donor to the film to make sure oh. there's conflict of interest you know everything from like the music cues and just stuff that I wasn't preparing as I was producing because I wasn't thinking about delivering. Yeah. But it is, yes, the it's the least fun part for mm. both producer and distributor. I hate dealing with it, but it is like a huge component of getting what's, to it. What's like a part of the process for you that you feel like there's a big misconception around? I I still think that people don't understand the whole distribution um, rollout and uh, strategy around that as much as it's actually surprising how much I have to explain that. I think that people, um, and not that they should have to. But it, it would help everybody if they did, right? But like to our point earlier, where do you find that information? So then the question yeah. is, how do how do we do that? How do we how do we be that change to help people understand it and have the tools to speak the vocabulary um, so that everybody wins? You know, it's easier for you, it's easier for them, it's easier for people starting out to already start thinking about the realities of of being a storyteller and the dreams and they that they have for their projects and the different potential you know, ways that they can share their work. Yeah. Do you have a sense? Is is it like a class or is it like, are you going to write a book? I I I do think that it should be a class. Uh, I do think there should be just more, there's, there has been more mentorship, like in some places around producers recently. I mean, Sundance has always had the creative producers lab and I think IFP has been good around producers, but there have not been many distribution labs or, um, you know, informative, aside from being on panels. And usually panels, panels are fine, but a lot of times it's just like executives like me, like talking in the same lingo with like others. I feel like it's panels are very alienating because it's like if you don't already speak the language if you're not already in with the cool kids you're just kind of lost a little bit and I find that a a lot of people at panels are newer 
to whatever the thing is. The really yeah, seasoned people exactly. have been to the panels. They're at home. They're not sitting there watching you guys have right. a fun conversation. Like, so it is more entry level, mid level people. And like, again, I don't think we're giving them the resources and setting them up for success. And then everybody's frustrated. And it's like, guys, if we could just communicate clearly and effectively and more transparently, like we would, we would save so much time and be so much more productive with the things that we're doing and then maybe have time in our lives to do other things that we care about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think like as with producing in general, yeah. there's not that many classes or places to go to even find out how to do that. I'd love to get your insight on everything you've learned talking to producers about like, you know, how yeah. producers of today are learning how to be producers and if there are more resources now, but I think distribution is still, unfortunately, the last thing that producers think about simply because they have so much on their plate and to have to do that on top of everything else. It's just like, oh, I have to learn something. I've never understood why we can't reverse engineer things. Like if I have a script I'm developing, I want to be able to come to you and say, hey, Danielle, with all of your experience in the distribution space in the next few years, if I can get a million dollars to make this movie, what's the probability that I'll be able to sell it for the price point in my comps? And great. you can go, wow, Carolina, this is great. Of course, it's execution dependent on the filmmakers. And there's all kinds of things that are the magic of production and all the things that have to go right for a film to end well. But at least you have like parameters, right? Of like, yeah, okay, absolutely. if we can get this in the can, then I know for a fact, I can tell my investors that I have distributors who would be interested in this, provided that I can do all of these things up front. And I, I know yeah. the studios used to work in that way where like marketing departments were involved before a movie went into production right. so yeah. that you're not afterwards spending more money to now reshoots and like, oh, actually the poster doesn't sell the movie. So we have to like all of this weird backwards way of working that mm-hmm. I, I just I don't know. It's like really bizarre. It's a re- we're a really ineffective industry in that way. And and like I said, like the amount of money we waste, like take that money, funnel it into helping support new voices and g- creating access for, for newer stories that maybe don't yeah. sell for much to get their shot at telling their stories. And so that's like what I would love to find a way to to figure out, because even for me, like I came up physical producing, right? And so with the exception of autism and love, which is kind of how you came into my life through Abby Davis, who's a yeah. dear friend who was my sales rep on that movie. Like I had never been through that process. And that was the first time I felt like right. I'm legit, you know, I'm here with fancy people who wear ties and are making deals from my movie. And it was a small doc and it was a very wonderful, like, you know, slice of pie, just beautiful piece on adults with autism and romantic relationships. But like, I remember being in conversations and being like, I don't know what anyone is talking about and having to put on this face right. of like, very interesting. I'll look into that and get home and like Google it. Yeah. But, but yeah. it's the only project to, to date really that I've been a part of that I'm not, I wasn't a for hire producer on, right. Where I was involved in raising the equity, like every single thing about that movie I touched from start to finish and it'll still be like my baby. But once I was able to get out of that, I, I've never understood how to reverse engineer it, right? Like I, I'll work on projects that already have distribution and it's like I do my production part and then I don't ever see all the next steps that happen to get it to screen. There aren't many places where you can go where you're getting the real 
the real deal, no bullshit information about what it is unless you're on the inside with somebody right. like you who's kind of keeping it real and sharing how it goes. And I, I don't yeah. think that... A lot of executives don't share because they think that keeping information is the only way to have power and that if everyone had that information, then their job would be threatened. I mean, it's a very like protective... It, I get it. I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's but, merciless, right? In that way, where if you make one mistake, then the person, the the powers that be, will just fire you because you pass on that movie. You didn't make that right. deal, and it's Which like is why there's a lot of that second guessing of like, wait, I thought that film was terrible. Why did now A twenty four wants it, and now this publicist is on? Maybe it's actually good. And you're like, and my British are even like following yeah. suit with that. I've seen it yeah. happen. I've right. seen a publicist convince. A24 to buy something they thought they hated and can it was it's crazy that yeah. they can just like put a bug in there and that's the strategy and then once one that's that distributors on it everyone else is like oh well they've had a great track record I mean the problem with distribution is it's not a science and all distributors it's all optics and like the people right. you think are the best distributors have had just as many failures financially is everyone else right but those aren't the ones people ever remember so if you're just more known if you're good at PR and just more known for your Oscars and your successes even if you've lost a lot of money it ends up not mattering in the public eye to the value of the company yeah but it's not a science and no one knows anything and no one can predict anything either which is why yeah there's all these rules like drama is tough porn's tough but like accents are tough but at the orchard we bought hunt for the wilder people and it did better than any other movie we've ever done and that had accents <laughs> so and a lot of searchlight couldn't figure out like what to do with it yeah they wanted to but they thought it was too risky so there's right. things like that where it's like there's there is just a culture of um safety and well it's fear-based right it's it's an industry that's built on fear and I think it is because to your point like there aren't metrics for any of this stuff it's all guesses like you're saying okay well on Memorial Day weekend three years ago most movies of this type did this kind of business so the probability that this will happen again is like in the 80 percentile thus it is worthwhile taking the risk even if then for the next three Memorial Day weekends for the next three years it's the opposite then they'll go okay never release a movie on Memorial Day weekend and then it's constantly (laughs) changing but what I find fascinating right is that how how long the production timeline takes. So like by the time I make my movie and you release the movie, if, if it's a fast cycle, it's like three years, right? And how much the market has changed in that time. Exactly. So even though I sold you on comps from three years ago, realistically, by the time this comes out, we're talking three years into the future. So this is now six years old data. And it's just like bizarre that there isn't a, a more sustainable way of tracking it. And maybe the streamers now have that data, right? Because they can see to the minute, to the second where right. people are stopping to watch a movie, how many times they're re- rewinding apart, all of that. and. I I don't know. It's in, it's very interesting. I don't have a I don't have a question. Yeah, just a rant. I mean, but. that's what they're trying to have all the data to predict everything in the world. But I still right. think sometimes you can have a movie that on paper, on screen, is a slam dunk, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. translate. People yeah. are like 
maybe they're sick of, I don't know, that, that weekend, whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, there's films you can go into blind thinking like this hits on all cylinders. It has great cast. It's funny. It's sad. Old people will go see it in the theater, and then it has great reviews, and then it just like doesn't work, and you yeah. don't know why. And that happens. So. And nobody ever really knows the why, right? I think that's the other myth. Like everybody can come up with all kinds of fluff language for the why but truly you just don't know in the same way that like you don't know why something does catch on and does succeed and you can write a whole narrative about the why it did do well it goes both ways you know but um, I think what's important though is that I mean for me and as a buyer the only the thing that gets me really excited is not buying a slam dunk with like great cast and it's funny and it works it's like buying a discovery film where someone has really pushed the boundaries and has new vision. And it's like so exciting the whole time. You feel like you've discovered a new voice. Yeah, That's what I look, I mean, that really is what I look for. It's yeah. like something new and fresh and exciting. I do think that the, the good buyer, like the Neons and A24s, that's what they're looking for too. And I think it's important to stay true to one's vision because that often is what works. And we have to see so many movies that anything that's like new and exciting and something we haven't seen before, um, even if it doesn't have cast, like if it's new cast who are great, uh, I would just encourage people to not play by those rules of no accents and I don't know, no. Yeah. Because I love it. If you have a vision that's good and passionate and new, that is more important to us than anything. We just want to be surprised because mm. all of the movies can just start blurring together because you're watching all day. As soon as you see something different or like a new idea, it's so exciting. Yeah. And it's so funny because then people watch those movies and then they think, well, I'll write those movies because I think that's what they want to see because that's what they're making. That's what they're buying. Right. So like the movie like every copycat. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Someone takes a big creative risk and then they succeed and you get Little yeah. Miss Sunshine, you get Moonlight, you get all of these incredible movies, you get Parasite. And then here come the right. people that think, all right, well, clearly this and now you get like a hundred of those until that no longer becomes unique. It's just yeah, exactly. Another, yeah, it's it's exactly. interesting. So I think to harp on that, like yes, like staying true to your voice, finding your voice, and and tr staying true to your vision and whatever it is that you're doing. I think that's one of the hardest part of the business because it's easy to get lost in the weeds and and not trust your instincts and your in, your intuition yeah. about who you are and what it is that you want to say. Or you feel like you made a shitty film, even if it sold well. You're not exactly. proud of it. It's not great. Exactly. I think so the I great films or work that you're proud of is the most important thing. And even if that didn't get a massive deal or, you know, get you your next, just to be able to be proud of your, and sometimes you can work for two years producing something and know that it's not your best work and not the greatest. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, you just learn from it and go to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I want to talk really briefly about the art of negotiating because I think that you've hinted at, at it during this conversation. And I know negotiate, negotiating is hard for many people, especially women, um, especially when you're starting out. What advice do you have? Like, how have you 
mastered this for yourself? What's the secret? Share it with us. I don't think I've mastered it. I still don't think I'm good at it. But <laughs> I used to, at the beginning, I would look at, I read all, a lot of articles about the art of negotiation and all these rules you're supposed to stick to. And I've never just been very good at it because I, I am, I'd like to be honest. Um, and I don't like to play a lot of these games. Mm. So I think just getting comfortable with negotiation is the hardest part. Even if you don't have like a strategy, just being able to turn down a deal that you think is bad or like just be just speak very plainly and transparently about why that doesn't work for you or why like sometimes I'll just honestly say like, look, I would love to give this film more money and it's not how I'm valuing the film. It's just simply because like all indie distributors, we have budgets and we'd rather just give more money to the planning and marketing of the film. Um, it's just, for me, it's more about honesty yeah. than anything. And it took me a while to be comfortable with not pleasing everyone and just saying no to things that people wanted. And I've gotten more comfortable with it just through like being honest about why it doesn't work for me or the company financially because that is what I have to protect I want to be kind to filmmakers and I want to give them you know the best deals possible but I'm also here to make sure that independent film distributors like us stay around and don't like break all our budgets and yeah it's sometimes a tricky position but um so it's it's more like a level of comfort that took me a while to get used to. I don't think I'm a master of it, but it's just a process that you have to do and just bring your own personality to the table. And um, if you're not, if you don't feel comfortable manipulating then just don't. (laughs) Yeah. I have two final questions for you. Um, But we, we talked briefly about the value of relationships, right? And how that's one of the things that people don't ever tell you. And I often felt like, oh man, like I didn't go the assistant route. I didn't work at an agency. I didn't come up on a desk. Like I don't know all the players, right? Because everybody goes in at the low level and they rise up, they move up, everybody moves up. And you know the people that have moved up because you're also moving up. Um, And so like, how do you recommend someone who hasn't maybe also gone down that path in in doing that networking thing, because the word networking can carry such a negative gross connotation, but like in truly meeting not just people, but the right people, like how do you identify who are the right people that you should be meeting based on the specific thing you, you want to do and then actually go meet them without being a weirdo? <laughs> um, I, I think it, there's two things. I think one is a lot of research and I remember specifically like email meeting Ted Sarandos at a party at Sundance and just briefly and then find digging up his email through someone else and writing him like a long essay, a really long impassioned essay. And he actually wrote back. This was like very early on in, you know, Netflix. They were still just doing DVDs, but I think one is just not being afraid to like do your homework, to do the research, know a lot about that person so that when they get an email from a young person that's very specific to their career 
it actually resonates. And right. I've had people reach out to me and who like, at first it can be a little off-putting. You're like, wow, you really Googled me? What have you seen? All the, are you? But it's actually then you're like, okay, I really appreciate that you took the time to do all this research and really know about me. And you clearly are ambitious. That's what it, and you did your homework. And I'm not just one of like, a thousand people you reached out right. to. You're not so, cold emailing, copy paste. So yeah. yeah, like target really specifically people who you admire, um, from distributors to producers to direct whoever that is. And then I would just say like you never know who's gonna be the next uh industry leader or the next big hotshot producer executive. It could be your intern. So just be kind to everyone. Yes. Just like be a good person. Yes. And don't think like that guy over there is important. So you treat your intern like shit. That's right. I mean, right. it's not just for your own food. It's good to just be nice and respectful of everyone. It's a long yes. way. But yeah. sometimes it really does pay off. In yeah. that like everyone has the capacity for greatness and you never know who that person is. And they will appreciate and remember that you were a decent person to them when you were young and nobody so right just try to treat everyone with respect and not look down on people that's also what i would say i I love that um this is my final question before i let you go but what advice did you receive early on in your career that actually helped you i think the advice i received early on in my life that was most helpful to me yeah it could be in your life was suck it up um, what does that mean to you? What does that phrase mean? To me, to you? that just meant that I would sort of overthink everything and fall into like, if I felt rejected by someone or I wasn't getting anywhere, then it would just be like wallowing in my own self hatred and pity. And that's the least effective thing you can do. Yeah. Um, and I, I just think you have to have a thick skin especially in this business, especially being a woman in this business, Mm. surrounded by lots of men. um, And that is changing, but it's still very, very imbalanced. Right. So um, not to take things too personally is also very good. Um, It's good. Yeah. Hard hard to do sometimes. I think it's a (laughs) lifelong journey there, but uh, at least... That's my, and our, my yeah. <laughs> it's true, but like everyone in this business is deeply insecure. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced of it, and no it's, one knows what they're doing too. That's the other thing. I tell myself this like every day, is like, because we also I think as women have a problem with not feeling like frauds and really mm. feeling like we deserve to be where we are. It's been a big problem for me at any minute, like. I shouldn't be here. People will know that I don't know all these things. And But what you have to understand is that no one knows all these things. And it's right. not science. And everyone's just trying to do the best they can and act like they're experts. But we're all just insecure. And and that's it. I mean, that's it. That makes me feel a lot better when I'm having to do something that's really yeah. intimidating to me or talk to like someone who I'm intimidated by. Yeah, you just remember they're just a person just like you. I, I'm so grateful to you for, for sharing and for spending this hour with me and the listeners. I'm only as good as my guests' willingness to talk about this stuff very openly. And so 
Thank you. I'm so happy. (laughs) Thank you. And I love that you're doing this. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos.